Welcome to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex Dean and Brian Cunningham. Here we have a drink, have a laugh, and you just might learn something about our favorite stories from history. Please visit our website at hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you like the show, please rate us five stars and leave a review. Cheers. Was the only successful prime ministerial assassination attempt in British history because the guy was a lawyer? And which U.S. president knew what, when to quit and still was buried next to his horse? These and other burning questions fans will be answered today. And welcome back to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast post Brian Cunningham surgery edition. Welcome back, my friend. How are you feeling? You know, it's uh, it looks worse than it is. I got some kind of nasty scars in there, uh, but all the stitches are the on the inside. And the pain I've been dealing with, dealing with Alex, as you know, for a decade is yeah. gone. Well, look, audio listeners will not have a clue what we're talking about because uh, you sound great. Uh, video list uh, viewers will know you've got a very good excuse for the fact we've uh, we're a little late on this episode. Yes, and my apologies on that. I think this is the only time in our history we've denied our listeners our wisdom for more than a week. And it's all me. Alex was ready to go at any time. I just didn't want to mix opioids with Hidden History Happy Hour, although could have been fun. Could have been fun. <laughs> this is, of course, the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast with Alex and Brian, where two reformed lawyers, one a CIA officer and the other a Tory public servant, have a drink, have a laugh, and give our legion of loyal listeners and viewers a few nuggets of history you can use in your daily lives. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to our YouTube channel and please give us five stars if you feel we've earned it. Right. And what are you drinking today? Well, um, I, uh, I have, you know, not wanted to mix my opioids with blue run. So I'm right. happy to report that I quit them after two days and I'm only on extra strength Tylenol. Uh, what like about you're you? Almost finishing that there. Yes. And I am uh, for my part drinking Mousel's Sussex dry gin. I've mentioned this to you before. We talk a lot about families on the podcast. I like the, the story of families. It's from a, a vineyard where I, I know that the owners uh, the vineyard of South Africa, I know the owners of that world, they've moved, they've got a property in the UK and their daughter makes this. And oh, it's man. a real family story of success. It also, by the way, is a great gin. Well, don't tell anyone that I'm considering trying gin. But if I were <laughs> going to, may I find Mouse Hall in the US yet or not? Mm. Or do we know? I think, so. I think not yet. Um, possible. I mean, they, they distribute their wine in the US, so I don't know why not. But um, it's extremely good. And, and as you know, uh, English wine is, is making a real uh, push in, in the markets. But spirits is obviously safer territory for something coming out of these islands. Yes, indeed. And if anyone uh, doubts the value of American wine, they should check out the now relatively old but still amazing movie, uh, Bottle Shock. With the late yeah, you like Bottle Shock more. I like Sideways more. Um, I think Sideways is great. I like both. I just don't like Pinot Noir, which is my my rap on uh, on Sideways. Yeah, but that's uh, yeah. Okay, I'm not as you know, I'm not a big Pinot drinker either, and I actually like Merlot. So, um, which I don't. I mean, I'm pronouncing it like they pronounce it in the film. I quite like Merlot. Uh, yes, but, yes. Um, we're not drinking Merlot. <laughs> <laughs> and speaking of my historical aversion to gin and my incredible open mindedness and willing to try it again <laughs> after all these years. On 11 August 2022, set your reminders, everybody, enable your notifications on Twitter because Alex and I are doing a live Twitter Spaces event where you can chat us up. And thanks to your votes, drum roll, you'll be hearing from us about UFOs. And you might even hear something about a Seattle based band. So uh, sign up, please. See the show notes for how to do it. Watch our Twitter and make sure you set your notifications. Everyone, look, there's chaos in the world right now. Thankfully, 
uh, Ukraine seems to be holding their own against Russia, perhaps even, uh, dare we say, winning, thanks to the great support of the British government and our government and others, and of course, their own heroism. Everything's going off the rails, though. In my country, we're having fights about the last election. We're having fights about the next election. Uh, Alex may or may not have heard in the news that there's some issues with his government uh, over One in or two. Uh, We've the mostly UK. got them right where we want them. Everything's fine. <laughs> Fair <laughs> enough. Right on the edge of success, I can tell. Yeah, absolutely. And it's easy to get depressed, right? But we actually, even with everything that's going on, we live in an age that is perhaps a bit more civilized uh, in terms of peaceful transitions of power than the 19th century. And we have two stories today that illustrate that in different ways. The first one is about, and I know you love your pub quizzes there, uh, the only successful assassination of a British prime minister. And by the way, when I say successful, I don't, I'm not praising it. I'm just saying right. the person right was actually killed. Unfortunately, in my country, we have a number more than that. And we can talk about maybe why that is and why that isn't. But my question, Alex, as you tell this story to keep in mind is, was it because he was only, your only lawyer prime minister? I think it's after it, not because of it. Uh, <laughs> Fair. It's not post hoc, I go prop to hoc. Uh, West wing I, plug. Indeed. Here goes. Um, as you say, every pub quiz uh, aficionado knows, Spencer Percival was the only British Prime Minister to have been assassinated. And it was on one fine day in May 1812, a year when a lot was going on. And the Prime Minister was rushing to the Chamber of the House of Commons. Uh, as he was going through the lobby uh, of Parliament, he was shot by an aggrieved businessman called John Bellingham. Um, as you say, lawyers uh, often in the boardroom seldom get the big chair, but um, Percival was one and it didn't really help him. He'd been prime minister for three years. He was not an unsuccessful prime minister. He'd, um, he'd prosecuted the Peninsular War um, in Spain against the French as usual. Uh, he had 13 children, um, very much a family man. He delivered a, undertook a great amount of charitable work and he was one of the leading proponents in my country of the abolition of slavery. Mm. And um, Little P, as he was uh, dubbed by our press of the day, which I think makes him kind of the 21st century casual readers, uh, least likely kind of rapper, uh, Little P yeah. um, had had some considerable success as a defender of, of the government, famous kind of attack dog in the, uh, in the House. And he then became Chancellor of the Exchequer, which is our Treasury Secretary. And he had to give up a very lucrative legal practice uh, to do that. Is that, um, sorry to interrupt, Alex, is that generally considered to be the sort of the senior minister in your government below the prime minister? Or Generally, it... so it's interesting. There's no fixed point on that. Um, it, it is confused for two reasons. The first is that we have a role deputy prime minister, which sometimes is used and is sometimes in abeyance. Hmm. Uh, of late, it's been used more because it's quite a convenient thing to have to dole out Coalitions. to people. But yeah, quite often it's not uh, being used. So that's the first reason that is uh, that's not clear. And the second is it sometimes depends on the standing of the other people who occupy the so-called great offices of state. So mm. the prime minister is obviously one of the great four offices. Chancellor of the Exchequer, as you imply, is the second. But foreign secretary and home secretary are the third and fourth. And traditionally, a prime minister upon stepping down uh, as prime minister, if he remains in he or in, increasingly in my country as it is now as she, uh, is of good standing in, uh, in his or her party, uh, they become foreign secretary. That's the traditional place you put a former prime minister serving in the cabinet. That's mm -hmm. fallen out of fashion now. But when that existed, you would tend to think that person was the, uh, the second in line. But yes, traditionally, absent those two points I make, yes, chancellor is the kind of uh, number two role. A and often you will know as you know in politics people make it to the number two role but don't get 
yeah. uh, to, to the big gig. But Spencer Percival was one who did. Let me tell you now about the guy who killed him. Um, John Bellingham had been imprisoned, imprisoned by the Russians, uh, and not for a short stint either, five years. And I imagine Ooh. in the early 1800s, a Russian prison was not exactly uh, paradise. Look, if, if the Russians are castrating prisoners of war today, you can imagine what they were doing in their prisons 200 years ago. Well, quite. And um, regardless of the rights and the wrongs, uh, Bellingham blamed the British government for not having bailed him out from uh, the Russians. And when he got back to uh, Britain, finally, he petitioned everyone he could think of to uh, make his case and every door was closed to him. And so he thought that he was being persecuted by the Russians still, uh, because he tried to expose internal corruption in Russia. Uh, this is obviously completely alien to any experience we might have um, today. <laughs> um, Little did those who rejected this um, insistent petitioner in his correspondence appreciate the lengths that his despair would take him to. He uh, became a regular um, attendee in the um, public gallery in the House of Commons, uh, where once upon a time people would just wander in and watch debates without a fuss. And he uh, popped along to a tailor who obligingly turned him out a nice uh, pocket for his suit for concealing <laughs> firearms. It was more more regular thing at the time. It was a rather different time today. Yeah. Um, in the lobby of the Commons, he shot the Prime Minister through the heart and uh, Percival died very quickly. And Bellingham was hanged for it within a week. Good um, process. Uh, yeah, well, the government was very keen to quell any idea of a broader revolt. Sure. And in its defence in that speed, there were literally dozens of witnesses to the killing and <clears> one <throat> suspect who was immediately apprehended. But I still right. take the point about, about due process. Um, most always worth asking with these kinds of high profile assassinations, conspiracy theories, not really. I mean, there were always rumors of a, a potential accomplice he could have had. But in the end, there's no doubt he was the aggrieved person. He was there on the spot and he shot him. Um, in any case, thus ended Spencer Percival and very quickly thereafter, um, John Bellingham. Um, you were hinting that there have been other attempts, and, and that's right. Long before he became Prime Minister, one of um, Percival's successors at number 10, Lord Palmerston, uh, narrowly avoided assassination as well. A and the bullet grazed his back. This was not a, um, you know, a far off attempt. Mm -hmm. um, his attacker had, was sent to a lunatic asylum and uh, Lord Palmerston sympathetically paid for his legal bills, which I thought was, uh, was something Mighty else. Mighty sporting of him. Indeed. And in more recent times, uh, Irish Republican terrorists have sought to murder um, Prime Minister and have successfully murdered more junior ministers. But as you say, in the main, uh, British Prime Ministers have not been subject to personal physical attacks in the way that we see in other countries. Two minor points to close, uh, which I like because, um, you know, my book is very much about the obscure. Mm -hmm. um, the former member of parliament and now peer lord bellingham in our uh, house of lords is a direct descendant of john bellingham and um, uh, you know in this in this era of, of punishing people for the sins of their fathers and asking you know council culture to to um to disclaim the people who went before them that i assume that means that um despite his decades of, of public service we should now cancel lord bellingham because <laughs> he's an enthusiastic assassin descendant and the second funny thing about this is we had an, in an election in 1997 in which my party the conservatives did really badly a direct descendant of spencer percival stood against henry bellingham <laughs> the direct descendant of john bellingham and he won enough votes as a minority candidate to cost bellingham his seat there was a brief kind of familial revenge which i like very much so did that 
issue come up in the debate between them? I, I'm sure that somebody made the connection. I, I, I've known the story, so they must have realized it at the time. Uh, I would love to have heard them. I don't know if you, they did any sort of Lincoln-Douglas debates. I don't know if you guys do that there, but it'd be yeah, great to hear, the, hear them debate that on the stump and whatever. What, what, yeah. what, what, what constabulary is that? or what constituency? what constituency? They're in Northwest Norfolk. And Bellingham won, won his seat back again, back straight afterwards. But nevertheless, he was out of Parliament for a term because the direct descendants of, <laughs> of the guy, his, his direct ancestor had killed, uh, got enough votes off him. It's a neat turn of history, isn't it? Yeah, if Sorkin were writing that story, the Percival descendant would uh, stop by the grave and pour some whiskey on it and say, this is for you, great, 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 great grandpa, (laughs) or whatever. You know, interestingly, echoes of this in, I'm going to do another show plug now, uh, Star Trek Strange New Worlds. I don't know if you've had the pleasure in the UK yet, but it's quite good, actually. Okay. And there is a, a, without spoiling it for anyone, there's a descendant of Khan from the Wrath of Khan. Now, I wonder, and... now, okay, so here's my thing about that. Everyone from Khan's band of rebels, the yep. superhumans that he had, got onto their ship, which they used to steal the Reliant. And then everyone in the Reliant was killed when Kirk finally got his act together. And therefore, it's very hard to work out how Khan had it. Oh, is it way before? Is it a descendant from way before the um, right. the super gang came together? Right. I've, I've, I've answered my own question. All but right. by the way, that's what you're stuck on? Not the fact that the Federation didn't realize that an entire planet in the star system was gone and they showed up at the wrong one, City Alpha 6 or 5 or whatever it was? No, yeah, 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 yeah. That's, that's a fair point, too. Uh, albeit, you know, they were in a rush when they dumped them and isolated them on a de- dying planet forever. It is true. And I will say as a writer, sometimes you just got to overlook that stuff and move on for the sake of the story. So I am sitting here in Seattle, Washington, looking out at a beautiful day in the harbor and 90 miles from me is Bellingham, Washington. Do we have any idea if that's related? I'm going to research it and we'll put it in the show notes if it is. Good question. I, I mean, these are um, families that have been prominent in um, in British life for a long time. And of course, British life greatly informed the formation of many towns and cities across america as it was colonized so there may well be some some connection but so the answer is i don't know but it could be we'll find out and i'm sad and embarrassed to report that a significant percentage of the american electorate in polls now are saying that violence is a legitimate way to resolve political differences i just can't get over this this is happening in my country too Uh, not direct violence uh, often against the person but taking things into your own hands if you don't get your way that's not how a democratic system works and if i just think give you one example there are many reasons that people might wish to have pulled down a a particular statue that was prominent in um in a british city called bristol um but um, what they did was that they, it was an association with, with slavery as, as has arisen more than once in recent times. Um, but the, uh, there was a local process. There was, you know, you could apply and you could raise the issue and they, there were votes and they lost. So instead of doing what you should do in democracy, which is seek to make better arguments or to find yeah. evidence you didn't have before, convince people who were hitherto not convinced, make your campaign better, bring more supporters on board. Mm-hmm. They just got a mob together, went down to the harbour and pulled the statue down anyway. That's not how society's meant to work. And in the end, this kind of direct uh, approach of, of, of violence is ultimately reductive because there will always be somebody out there worse and more violent than you if that's yeah. what the right the right approach you think is and i and i run the risk of, of, of sounding very pious so i'm going to wrap up by saying 
that in my view, these people who think that they are so tolerant that they must act immediately and violently um, yeah. in order to ensure that tolerance prevails don't seem to really understand what tolerance is. No, and honestly, Alex, five years ago, I would have made this joke, <laughs> probably did five years ago, because that's how my memory is, uh, you know, that um, what you described with the pulling down of the statue, not getting your way and, and turning to violence and, and, and destroying things, pretty accurately describes the Boston Tea Party. Uh, however, I don't want to make that joke because I'm afraid some listeners, not none of our loyal listeners, but somebody that might just stumble across this would think I was advocating violence in the no. pursuit of government. It, it's, it's really, it, and, and by the way, it's not just um, Trump world in the United States. There's something like, I'm, I'm going to make this number up, but it's order of magnitude, right? Something like 35% of registered Democrats in polls say right. That violence is a legitimate well, form. I'm of afraid government. I assumed you meant the woke world. That I assumed you meant the ultra woke who say, you know, if you um, if someone takes a position that's different to us, it's not just it's not just the you know tolerance might mean that you have a different point of view to me and I I tolerate it. That's the part of living in a civilized society. I'm so tolerant that you can't just, dis you're not allowed to disagree with me. And furthermore, yeah. you can't just be, be quiet. You can't be silent. Silent is violence. Unless you actively agree with me, then yeah. next stage, for at least some of these people you're talking about, I get to be violent to you? I mean, no. come on. It, it is the woke, but it's also the MAGA Republicans on oh, the sure. Trump it's side. On and it's also, it's just, it's become a thing now. Like that's in the public discourse, which, you know, I've been in right. government, what, almost half a century. I've never, never run across that. Well, look, Bellingham was a, a very sad and troubled soul. And uh, the man who tried to assassinate um, Palmerston was an actual uh, madman. But um, they, the, the acts to which they go, the length to which they go, are to be deplored at every stage. And yeah. um, it seems strange to have to even say that, doesn't it? Yeah, that's why I'm saying I don't even want yeah. to make that joke because yeah, 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 I don't want someone now. to take Probably, it the wrong way. You could but... almost not make any joke now because nothing is a joke and it must be taken literally. Right. To be clear, kids watching at home, violence is never the answer and don't do drugs. Well, alcohol is okay. <laughs> yes, exactly. Only legalized drugs. Only, only the drugs that society outside the state of Oregon, which has legalized all drugs, allows you to have. Is that right? Oregon's legalized. Oh, my drugs. God. You can, you can buy heroin legally in Oregon. Right. So one of the arguments that's always offered against liberalization in jurisdictions like mine, which still have pretty restricted um, drug approaches, is that if you people are always in search of the next high. Yeah. And if you uh, if you legalize cannabis, people start doing more coke. And if you legalize coke, they start doing more heroin. If you legalize heroin in the end, they're taking horse tranquilizers constantly to yeah. uh, get the next buzz on. I don't know if that's true or not, just what's uh, an observation that I've heard often enough in the course of the debates in the UK. I've heard from friends of mine in drug enforcement that if you can access, not, again, not recommending it kids at home, if you can access the sort of dark web marketplaces for horrible things, um, the fentanyl brokers out of China actually say, the reason addicts that you should buy our fentanyl is it's so deadly that DEA agents have died just by touching it. And they believe that's a that's a feature, that's not a, a sales. That's a sales feature. Yeah. Good grief. All right. So I guess this, there's a lot of lessons to be taken from this. One, one question I have, though, and this is a little bit of a callback to our um, 
our NRA discussions we had a few episodes back. Any theories, Alex, on why compared to the United States, for sure, and I think probably even compared to countries like India, uh, the UK has had such a so, so many fewer assassination attempts, or at least successful ones. Um, dumb luck is part of it. I mean, the IRA yeah. had they been had they had better aim with a mortar, and there were plenty of people who had to tell them how to use it if they um, had been able to recruit them, would have been able to do great damage to the Downing Street of their day, and might have um, killed the prime minister there. Uh, equally, the Brighton bombing was was only very good luck that meant that Margaret Thatcher didn't die mm -hmm. when the IRA blew up the Grand Hotel in Brighton. Tory Conservative Party conference, and they they um, they did kill other people, and they they crippled the uh, the wife of, of one of Margaret Thatcher's closest uh, colleagues, and it's a um, it, it's not for want of trying amongst yeah. some people. So luck is part of it, I think. Um, another part that occurs to me as we talk is that um, people. The, the people who go to these ultimate extreme ends are those who feel disenfranchised, so totally yes. alienated and disenfranchised. They have no other options. Uh, yeah. and, uh, uh, but also feel so distant from the center of power. Mm -hmm. And in my country, we have created more centers of, of political power for you to feel closer to, whether or not it's a good thing, with our Welsh Assembly and now a of Parliament and our Scottish mm -hmm. Parliament. Um, the Irish example is the one that stands out because it's still produced these uh, these attempts because some people don't acknowledge the power that, that exists there at all, uh, yeah. whether it's with the Stormont Parliament sitting or that they resent uh, Westminster. And in your country, people are whipped up and generate have generated such hatred towards Washington and mm -hmm. towards uh, those things that uh, that seems to me might be part of it too we also have far less of a kind of um gun culture well that that's sure but in the end you know you can you can stab someone or try and that's true, yeah. and there's lots of horrible things that people can do in extremists but yes the gun point must stand for something there's also less of a kind of millenarian hate the state um mm -hmm. you know we we must recreate our own civilization here on earth um attitude prevalent i'm sure there are there exists somewhere on the margins in the uk but it's certainly you know it, there's no massive survivalist community that wants to be armed and right. you know it's constantly in friction with the state um, and the last point i would make is that our prime minister whilst increasingly kind of presidential in function and activity is in the end the leader of the party that emerges in the legislature, that yeah. party can change that person itself, as we're seeing right now in the United Kingdom. And it's not a presidential personal role. And when you distill that kind of executive power into one person, then that man or one day woman uh, in your country we're working will, on yeah, will, um, will become a focal point for disgruntlement and despair and, and anger and hatred, as well as all of the positives that they from time to time are capable of, of mastering. Well, Alex, as I know, you know, up until the aftermath of the John F. Kennedy assassination, one could literally walk up to the steps of the White House and have lunch. And as you know, from being in Washington the last couple of decades, that's nowhere close that's to possible. The entire streets closed uh, after 9-11. So it's, it's unfortunate. And of course, then we had the insurrection on January 6th. And now there's a lot more security measures at the Capitol, which, you know, as a security person, I would say are necessary, but also it does make one feel a little bit less having the ability to have an impact well, on their government. I feel the same in the way that I was describing the you know, ability once just to walk into the public gallery. Uh, and you, um, you would once, have, if, if challenged, which you weren't, you would be able to say, I want to see my democracy in action and go and take uh, your seat. Instead, you are 
you're asked when you go to our House of Commons, um, who are you here to see? And I always uh, have this kind of deep, I'm not a particularly, you know, aggressive or rebellious person. My instincts always say, push off, you know, I'm here to or, see. Or to... you say, I'm here to see the Queen. <laughs> well, then you'd be in the wrong place. But, um, but you know, but there's actually, I'm quite pleased. There's no, still no formal procedures. No, you know, show me your appointment or anything right. like that. <clears throat> and, um, and in the end, they've had to go to these security lengths in my parliament because of real direct threats. And one brave policeman recently died defending our, our parliament, despite the administrations of another of another brave person, one of our members of parliament, who rushed to his aid and sought over a long period of time to deliver first aid to him when he'd been callously murdered by um, uh, a terrorist. So, uh, so I do realize I do realize and recognize the need for these things. Well, we obviously on January sixth uh, had multiple uh, deaths, um, including of a of a Capitol police officer and. That was pretty jarring. I mean, as somebody who spent their whole life in government and and um, and politics, it, it was it was terrifying, to be honest. And um, I'm not sure how we get past it, but hopefully we can. And um, if there were more people like our next guest, Rutherford B. Hayes, perhaps we would be able to get by a little bit better. Obviously, he's not a guest, as he's been dead for uh, more than a century, but. I will say in our recent poll, many of our viewers and listeners wanted us to talk about ghosts. So this is not a ghost story, but uh, it is a story of someone long dead. Before we get to that, though, Alex, I just want to hold up um, what I think is a virtually identical cover to Alex's new book, More Lessons from History, except that one will be in blue yeah. and will include the word more. Yeah, it's uh, the delay in publication was caused by coming up with such an imaginative new title. Well, I, I've, I've, uh, those who follow us on Twitter will know that I have already pre-ordered my copy and the postage is more than the book. Which yeah, I mean, look, you, you could, of course, order it uh, or you could, of course, order the Kindle version or you know, an ebook version, which would because a lot of people have been touched to say that they uh, I, don't, I don't take this badly, but they'd ordered it and then forgotten all about it. Uh, and then they got this <laughs> this nice surprise. You get this notification, being hey, I've got a new book on my Kindle, and uh, there it is on the day of publication. So that's well, I would option. never discourage people from getting the Kindle version, but you can't do this with it, right? With you can't Kindle mark version. it up and have your hard copy and scroll your notes. Although I, I'm sure people will leap to ebooks defense and say yes, you can. You can. It's make true. Notes and so it's true. You can. You can. Anyway, go out, find more lessons from history, order it. Uh, I'm sure it's going to uh, sell off the shelves as soon as it comes out. And uh, I don't know whether this story is going to be in it or not, but uh, it is. let's let's it tell is. it anyway. All right. So, Alex, as history teaches us time and again, no one present company accepted is good at everything. For example, the amazing bass player and songwriter Sting Singer is undeniably one of the masters of modern music. Still, his Three Penny Opera revival, dubbed a dud by almost every critic, opened and closed on Broadway in 65 days which for those of you who don't know, Broadway is short. It is possible to be brilliant at some things, but mediocre or abjectly terrible at others. And the trick is to stick to your strengths and know when to quit. And for those of you who think that it's great to read Alex's Lessons from History tweets, which it is, but don't listen to our podcast, that little paragraph you didn't get unless you were listening to our podcast. Now you might find it's not worth it, but at least you get a little extra. Such is the story of Rutherford B. Hayes, the 19th president of these United States. 
Now, Hayes was a bona fide war hero, Alex, and as it turns out, a decent mm. administrator. An early abolitionist, Hayes left his law practice, a president who was a lawyer who did not get assassinated, one point for our side, uh, to join the 23rd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, and he saw extensive combat in the Civil War, our Civil War. Four, count them, four horses were shot out from under him during the war, including Old Whitey, which is buried next to President Hayes and his wife in their tomb in Fremont, Ohio. The future president was wounded multiple times, including quite severely at the Battle of South Mountain. Now get this, still in combat, Hayes was elected to the United States Congress in 1864, despite refusing to campaign. And he would not take his seat until after the war, proclaiming he would, quote, never come to Washington until I can come by Richmond, close quote. Richmond, of course, at the time being the capital of the Confederacy. Small footnote, maybe a few more of our congressional candidates in the U.S. would have the same ethic today. But that's another story. 1876. Then Ohio Governor Rutherford B. Hayes lost this sounds familiar. It's, it is. Lost the popular vote as the Republican candidate for president. But in a once-in-history moment, unless you count 2000, 2016, 2020, and possibly 2024, uh, it was an election controversy. 19 electoral votes from Republican states were in dispute. And as uh, our non-North American viewers uh, will probably know, but I'll just briefly remind them, is we don't have a direct election system in the United States. We have an electoral college. So each state sends so-called electors to the Congress to carry out the wishes of the voters in their states or modern history, maybe not. Allegations of widespread voter fraud in that year led to a congressional commission to determine the next president. Hayes prevailed in this commission by an eight to seven party line vote. So Alex, I don't know if you remember the Kevin Costner movie, uh, which I'll, I'll put in the show notes, where um, it turns out the entire U.S. election hinges on the vote of one guy in Arizona. No, and so the entire lobbying operations of both amusing. parties zoom in on Kevin Costner, but eight to seven. So I don't know how many million people there were in the United States at the time in 1876, but literally there were 15 human beings who decided the election. And it was an eight to seven party line vote with Hayes winning as the Republican. He took office peacefully. No one tried to assassinate him. No one blocked his ability to take office. However, the quid pro quo for the backroom deal that led to Hayes's election was the end of Reconstruction in the post-Civil War American South, leading, among other things, to Jim Crow laws and a century of racial segregation. Quite the backroom deal, no? But that's not the whole story. Yeah. Because once Hayes was elected and took office, even though you could argue his election was tainted, he immediately pledged not to run for re-election. And also left out of Alex's version of the story, but I'm going to add, as my personal aside, Alex doesn't have to agree with me, are you listening, Joe Biden? Hayes pledged not to run for re-election once he was elected. A pledge he kept, which helped to restore the faith in the U.S. presidency. Hayes also battled fiercely against the patronage system and helped reform the U.S. civil service into a meritocracy, more or less. And his policies helped the U.S. economy recover, recover from the economic panic of 1873. Hayes also signed a law allowing female attorneys for the first time to argue before the United States Supreme Court. And 150 years later, we still do not have a female U.S. president, Alex, as you pointed out earlier, but we're working on it. Now, 
viewed through the lens of history, Hayes, I think, is a bona fide, serious, decisive Civil War combat hero and a kind of a mediocre president. And as a politician, he was party to a cynical and some would say disastrous deal on Reconstruction. But he also had significant policy achievements while in office. And most importantly, he knew when to quit. He uh, retired uh, back to his uh, hometown in Fremont, Ohio. He's buried uh, literally in a gravesite next to his wife and his horse from the Civil War, Old Whitey. And that may or, not, may, may or may not be the place where I uh, had my first kiss. Uh, that's maybe for our live event on 11 August to talk about. Um, footnote, whilst little remembered in the United States, Hayes is in fact a national hero in Paraguay. Because as president, he moderated a dispute with Argentina and Paraguay, awarding Paraguay a huge tract of disputed land. So if you're wandering South America in 2028, looking for stuff to do, you can attend a celebration of President Hayes in the town of Villa Hayes in the province of Presidente Hayes. And may we have many more years of peaceful transition of power. Cheers. Cheers. Good story. Uh, I've yet to go to Paraguay. I'd like to very much. Me too. And there was a big privacy conference, as you know, there a few years ago, and neither one of us made it. We missed out. So, you know, Alex, we, we both have our own, um, obviously, patriotism, nationalism, and pride. I don't know what's the better system. You know, I mean, presidents definitely have the ability to execute more directly and forcefully in times of crisis least on paper. But it's pretty much as we proved by two impeachments of Donald Trump impossible to remove them uh, during their term of office. Whereas in your country, that's a much, and it's not easy, but it's an easier thing to do. What, what are your thoughts? Well, you've summarized that well. You're absolutely right. It isn't easy and it does harm to the party doing it. But you can, in the end, defenestrate your own leader. Not only has that just happened in the United Kingdom with Boris Johnson, but of course, it also happened with Margaret Thatcher. Right. So, um, so that's one significant Churchill, difference. Right. Uh, well, Churchill was. Or did he just lose in the box. general? Yeah, okay. Churchill lost an election. Um, but uh, I, I would also, and then he had a second, uh, less, slightly less successful term, uh, and in which he didn't quite go on his own terms, but um, but he left uh, office um, in a peaceful transition to to a successor. Um, but anyway, anyway, he wasn't like slung out in the way that we've we've had with um, both Thatcher and Johnson. Another distinction I would I would point to is term limits. Yeah. You have. Um, ever since its inception and as it was understood the role of president was not safe for life indeed washington was offered a kind of king yes. for life uh, role and uh, made a very big point and saved your republic effectively in turning it down the biggest assailant of that of that tradition and and, and um of uh, of um rule was uh roosevelt was yeah. fdr who uh, had four terms and may you know said it may have been an unwritten rule but an unwritten rule can't be enforced so i'm going to do four yeah. um you know, hence giving us the the uh, actual need to put it down and to um, uh, by to constitutional amendment, which is no easy yeah. thing. Yeah, quite. We've oh, only had twenty some of them. The the contrary position, the contrary point is this: that in my country, Parliament can pass a law 
and then that becomes the law and parliament is sovereign. No parliament can bind its successors. In your country, you have explicitly different um, situation in which you have a a higher level of law, which is above the the legislature. Uh, And if you want to uh, pass a different law, you can't just do it. You have to go through the the lengthy process of amending your constitution. I think that um, having a constitution may very well be a good thing, but it, it should it, and I accept too that it probably should be a high bar uh, to change that constitution. But should it really be that high? Because the answer, the the legal answer to if you don't like the constitution, don't pretend that its clauses mean different things. Change it has been given by various Supreme Court justices who who believe in originalism and textualism and have right. a position that I find very attractive intellectually. But it's it's actually no real answer if it's so difficult to amend the constitution in practice that it's all, all but impossible. So that's the the issue I would find with your system of government, not actually the broader points about how the executive is produced and so forth. Those are, are reasonable questions on which reasonable people can disagree. It's that, um, and, and can have equally good systems in different ways. The difficulty with the American system is making it so difficult to amend yeah. your constitution. Well, you probably know Jefferson was of the view that essentially every generation should create their own new constitution. Obviously, he lost that fight in the in the in the actual drafting of the constitution. But that was his view: is we, well, how can we in 1789 bind people 500 years from now? Well, here we are, uh, <laughs> halfway through. Yeah, I mean, I, look, I think it. I think it has served us well. I think the Italian constitution has been amended what thousands of times since World right. War II. That can't be. That can't be good. But, you know, take things like the Equal Rights Amendment, which simply said in the 70s that women should be treated equally to men. Uh, I say simply, it wasn't quite that simple, but that was the intent. That amendment passed uh, the Congress pretty quickly, like within five or six years. In our, in our system, you have to have not only a supermajority in Congress, Senate and the House, but then you have to have a supermajority of state legislatures also voting in the amendment. That's why it's so difficult. Right. right. And that amendment is still on the books. And I think there's only like two states left that would have to ratify it. But that was almost 50, almost half a century ago. And, and we haven't done it. And not that that's a, you know, people can debate the merit of that particular issue. I'm not going to debate it because I live with a woman and I have two daughters. But the point is, a half a century later, two states to go, we still haven't done it. So the idea that we're going to do things like get rid of the Electoral College, which a lot of people argue for, or create term limits for United States senators is, is ludicrous because the process is so hard and the stakes, uh, the interests of the people that would have to vote for it, in this case, right. the United States senators, are so, are so powerful that it just it seems impossible. Yeah, that's interesting. I also consider the framework that your constitution was built with anticipating the creation of many new states and that's a process that's that's slowed down enormously if you consider the 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 path of history arc of history yeah um you know i I think i I would regard the settlement with puerto rico as deeply um unsatisfactory certainly if i was puerto rican i I oh yeah uh, but it's District being held Columbia, up. The same thing. Yeah. yeah, although that you can make a different, you can think about retroceding bits of the District of Columbia back to Maryland and Virginia. From the standpoint of the founders who didn't want any state to have the supremacy of owning the capital, totally reasonable. 
From the standpoint of D District of Columbia residents, of which I used to be one, yeah, who yeah. have to pay but our taxes and don't have any point. representation. The district has grown to a position that people weren't anticipating at the time. It's much bigger than people thought. Do you, it, it's not our 100 square miles anymore because you lost Alexandria and the bit uh, to the south of the river from it. But does it really need to extend all that way uh, north? My answer would be no. It should be, and this is not just um, my ideas of journalist called Adam Rappaport who, who wrote about this uh, I think he, after having written about um, Congress uh, for a long time and I, it seems to me quite attractive idea that basically the historic district should be the District of Columbia very tightly drawn around you know the Capitol building and uh, White House, White House yeah. and, and not not and Springport, not that much more uh, and you know, rather than having this enormous kind of police force that it's got um, for the district and so forth, you could hack bits off and, and return them off. But my point was that, yeah, I guess you've had Alaska and, and Hawaii uh, within, if you're a, a very much older person, living memory or, for, you know, but not but, even in my lifetime. No, but, you know, there are people around who can remember it, yeah. but, uh, you know, nothing like the same kind of grants of statehood that we would once have expected. And in part that, or indeed states splitting off from existing states in, in ways that were once conceived of more as being more plausible. And that's in part because people are terrified of altering the balance of power in the Senate and getting yeah. two new senators to, you know, and yeah. in these examples, it would be two new Democratic senators, people would assume. And for much the same reason, California, which many views might be regarded as unmanageable and ungovernable with the size and complexity that it is. Yeah. Logically, you might break it up, but gifting more senators to the Democrats is not something Republicans will entertain. So that, so those are those kind of instrumental problems with your constitution, which I, from the outside, would at least humbly point to. Well, and there is a process in our constitution to hold a constitutional convention to open up everything. Right. And a lot of people over the years have advocated for that, particularly when they don't like the way things are going at the moment. The problem is it opens up everything. I mean, you yeah. could have, I don't know how many thousands of people sit in Des Moines or somewhere and reverse the Second Amendment. Now, for people that um, hate the Second Amendment, they could also reverse the First Amendment. I mean, they could literally do anything. They could vote our country into a dictatorship at that convention. So that particular Jeffersonian idea of a constitutional kind of revolution every generation, that's not particularly attractive to me. No, I agree. I also think that there's a the, the current generation uh, coming through would be particularly bad one to do it. Um, you know, because we've got this glory, at least most generations think they've got something to learn from history. And I think we're probably on safe ground with this podcast, given people who self-identified as being interested in history and have listened long enough to get to this bit that the idea of a, this kind of glorious year zero that many amongst the woke have, that there is a, a unique wisdom that this generation has and nobody else before yeah. it has. That has it's, it's like teenagers on crack, that everyone everyone else older than me is dumb uh, and not just dumb, but is moronic and bigoted. And the only use of history is to work out quite how moronic and bigoted they were. Right. If you have that view, you're very likely in the end, I imagine, to get older and to have children. And your children might very well think you're the bigoted moron if that's what you've taught them to think about all past generations. So it's reductive even on its own merits. Well, I would apologize in advance to my daughters, except I know for certainty they do not listen to this podcast. So I will simply say, <laughs> I will simply say that one of the most infuriating, you know, you, as you know, Alex, I'm a musician and my daughter's yeah. a singer songwriter. One of the most infuriating pieces of music to come out of this century to me was the song uh, waiting for the world to change. 
And the whole idea was our generation, not our generation, but uh, Gen Z or whatever it was at right. the time, just were so powerless that all they could do is sit back and wait for politicians to do something different. Wrong. If you feel that strongly about something, you know, go to Michigan, run for the state legislature or do what you right. did, Alex, run for the, uh, you know, the city council of London or don't just sit back and complain about it. Go do something. But that's not. And that, you know, not to condemn a whole generation, but there are a lot of people who don't have that view. Hidden History Happy Hour uh, listeners may never have expected to hear this, but on that point, I support AOC and I admire people like AOC who actually have to get up and go to yeah. go do something and stand for office. That that I admire. Yeah, I'm in this weird position now in, 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 in the U.S. of admiring two women that I have absolutely no agreement with on any policy, and that is uh, AOC and Liz Cheney. And uh, what I love about Liz Cheney and why I would quit my job and go vote for, you know, work for her if she ran for president is her standing up for democracy at the risk of her own peril. Uh, she, she probably will be defeated in Wyoming. So talk about mm -hmm. a profile and courage. And then on the other hand, AOC, I agree with nothing other than the fact that she went out, as you say, and, and knocked on a million doors, not a million, knocked on hundreds of thousands of doors and got herself elected. And I wish more people would quit bitching and go do that. Good thoughts, my friend. Good talking to you. I think that's it for today, everybody. Tune in with us on 11 August, August 11th here in North America. Check the show notes for how to do that. And we're out. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to the Hidden History Happy Hour podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And if you have questions, comments, or suggestions for topics, you can find us on Twitter or on our website, hiddenhistoryhappyhour.com. We look forward to joining you next time. Much gratitude to our multi-talented production team of Jeremy Kaur, Kate Cruz, and Grace Keller, and to our visionary executive producer, Ivan Williams. And thanks also to our art designer, David Wardle, without whom this podcast would be, well, history. Cheers. Cheers.